Welcome to CropSense, presented by North Carolina Cooperative Extension. I'm Jacob Morgan, a field crops agent with North Carolina Cooperative Extension. Today, we have Dr. Matthew Van, tobacco specialist with NC State University. Good morning, Dr. Van. Welcome back to the podcast. Good morning, Jacob. Always good to be back with you on CropSense. So I was scraping ice off my windshield this morning, but for tobacco growers, the season is getting started in the next few weeks. So I guess, can we start off, you talk a little bit about tray sanitation and maybe some different ways to clean trays and the positives and negatives. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're, we're getting we're, pretty close to Valentine's Day, so that's a plug uh, for you for something for you to think about in your personal life. But as we get to as we get to Valentine's yeah. Day, part of my mind always kind of goes away from the holiday aspect and and really starts to think about that being the core time for for us seeding greenhouses in Eastern North Carolina. Um, Obviously, with that. You know, tray sanitation is a huge talking piece, uh, particularly as we think about input prices and, you know, the cost of new trays and all those kind of things. And, and again, us just trying to mitigate input prices right now. So, you know, tray sanitation is going to be a front line of defense for us to manage pathogens in a greenhouse. And again, I'm not a plant pathologist, but in all of my conversations, I, I remind growers that our number one option for tray sanitation is going to be using steam. Uh, you know, as our sterilant process. So we encourage growers when they're done transplanting, let's pressure wash those trays. Then let's put them in the steam room and get them steamed at 176 degrees for 30 minutes. But I fully realize that, you know, we may have some growers that haven't done that. And the message today is if you haven't done it, there's still time and there's still the ability to, to squeeze some control out of that, that practice. So again, we encourage steam, uh, because we know that, that that wet moisture is going to penetrate the cracks and crevices of those trays better than a dry heat. Um, and again, it's going to be much more efficacious and certainly going to be more efficacious and, and more safe than some of the dips and sterilants that are available. And I primarily think about bleach uh, in that regard. You know, bleach is, is obviously a really good sterilant, but we do see a major injury potential because of hyperaccumulation of sodium and chloride when those trays aren't sufficiently washed. We also find that in, in controlled trials that you generally don't see the same level of pathogen control and elimination uh, with a bleach dip that you would with a steam application. So for a lot of reasons, we just tell growers, let's stick with steam, let's get it done. Uh, again, there still is time to do that if they've not done it already. I know Lenore County has a a steam box, I guess you would call, or system yep. that you, that's, you could rent. And I know there's people that are doing it commercially. Maybe you got a buddy or someone you know that has one that you can borrow if you haven't gotten that done yet. So can you talk a little bit about the importance of testing water prior to uh, seeding our trays in the greenhouse? Sure. You know, when I think about water testing and you know having a source water sample report, I frame that around a soil test. Just as I wouldn't want to plant a crop of tobacco in a field that I didn't know what the residual nutrients and pH, you know, might be in that soil system, I would be really hesitant to grow my tobacco seedlings uh, in a greenhouse that I was kind of going in blind and not knowing those same things about the source water. You know, and again, I tell growers that from a source water standpoint, that really sets the stage for, for greenhouse production. It's going to have a huge impact on a lot of the things you you might do or, or might not do to grow your transplants. And again, you're talking about a $5 water sample 
when you submit that sample to the Department of Agriculture here in North Carolina. And again, that's that's just a really good investment. But when I think about the information we glean out of that, one, that information is only as good as the sample that's provided. So I remind growers that when they are are collecting their source water, you know, let the spigot or the tap, whatever it may be, you know, let it run for a, a long period of time just to kind of flush out the pipes and, you know, get some some water drawn into the system from wherever that, that source may be. I've seen source water reports where we didn't allow uh, water to flush through the system sufficiently. And inevitably in those cases, you know, we saw major difference in water alkalinity that had a huge impact on the amount of battery acid we might add to, to neutralize alkalinity. I also saw a case one time where we had exceptionally high heavy metals in a, uh, in a water sample. And again, I think that had to do with maybe water sitting in a a pipe, you know, over the winter, and then maybe some of those metals going into that, uh, that water from it just being stagnant for so long. So again, flush the system, we say 10 minutes or more, I, I would prefer, you know, the longer the better. But again, you don't need with about uh, 16 ounces uh, to do that. Just make sure you've got a clean bottle. When we look at our source water, you know, the things that I look at are pH. Obviously, we look at alkalinity and then there will be a recommendation if we need to make a battery acid or sulfuric acid application to, to neutralize uh, alkalinity or the bicarbonates. But things that I see in eastern North Carolina that kind of have caught me by surprise uh, particularly from some deep wells along the coast, is the amount of sodium and chloride that I'm seeing in some deep wells, uh, again, on the coast and, and a little bit further inland. So I've had cases where we've actually recommended to growers to go find, you know, maybe an alternative water source to possibly dilute down some of those salts. Again, when we think about salt content, that can have a negative impact on seedling growth immediately after germination. So we want to mitigate those things. You know, we also want to look at, at micronutrient concentrations specifically for something like boron. And if we're in a, a, a water system that's largely absent of boron, you know, we may need to add a little bit to the system if we're not getting it with our NPK fertilizer. So again, there's a few things to look at, but those are the ones that I think about right now. I like to keep my thermostat in my house about the same temperature throughout the day and night, but that's not really what we should be shooting for in these tobacco greenhouses. Is that correct? Absolutely. You know, when we look at when we look at temperature management in a greenhouse, after immediately after we seed and float trays, my mind automatically goes to temperature management. And as a good rule of thumb, we would encourage growers to have a minimum of 68 degrees Fahrenheit at night, and then a maximum of about 86 degrees Fahrenheit during the day. And again, as you said, we as humans like a, a constant comfortable temperature, but we need for a tobacco seed to experience that temperature fluctuation of 68 to 86 because it helps germination, it helps break seed dormancy, and we just ultimately get a better plant stand. So once we get our maximum plant stand, which, you know, again, under best conditions may be 12 to 14 or 15 days after we seed, we can reduce that minimum temperature to about 55 degrees. It may slow down plant growth just a little bit, but it's not going to hurt anything. Again, we've already got our maximum germination established. And, and again, lowering that thermostat by 10 degrees or more is going to be a significant savings on fuel inputs as we think about bottom line and, and cost of production and those kind of things. So again, 68 to 86 for about the first two weeks, let's get our plant stand established. 
and then we can draw down to about 55 to, to 60 degrees and, and not miss a beat. But those would be the standard recommendations for us coming from extension. So we've got our, our trays cleaned out. We've got them seeded. We know our water's where it needs to be. It's time to put the fertilizer in. When do you recommend growers coming back and putting that first dose of fertilizer in the bed? Yep. So when you look at the total fertilizer input from in a tobacco greenhouse, we base everything off of parts per million nitrogen. And when we use our tobacco formulated greenhouse fertilizers, all our other macro, secondary, and micronutrients are going to come along at an appropriate concentration. You know, again, when we when we feed the nitrogen levels like they're supposed to be. So a total nitrogen budget for a greenhouse is, is 250 parts per million. And the way we deliver that is in a split application. And typically, we would see the first application at 150 parts per million nitrogen seven to 10 days after we seed, and then the remaining uh, 100 parts per million about three to four weeks later. So with that, you know, again, the split application, you're reducing the exposure to soluble salts, again, just by kind of mitigating, you know, and having that split application. But the reason we really want to, growers to wait until about a week to 10 days after they seed to apply that first uh, application of fertilizer is to further reduce the uh, soluble salts exposure. So we don't want to see growers, you know, adding these NPK greenhouse fertilizers uh, at the time of seeding or before seeding. Let's do it after the fact. That allows that tiny tobacco seedling the chance to go ahead and become established. And hopefully, you know, under the best conditions, the growth rate of those seedlings can outpace the, the major influx of those fertilizer salts within the root zone. Uh, so again, that split application is going to be best. Again, it's more of a spoon feed approach, but it's all about fertilizer salt you know, risk mitigation, in my opinion. And again, that's a, a time-tested program. Now, on the flip side of that, we do have situations where a grower may need to add a little bit of calcium fertilizer, like a gypsum material, or maybe a boron material before we, before we seed or before we float the trays. That's okay. Our salt risk with those products is relatively low versus some of these blended materials. And again, I'm not absolutely not saying anything bad about these NPK blended materials because they're time tested and, and are, are long standards within our industry. We just need to think about how, again, we can mitigate salt injury, and that's one way to do it. So a grower may be worried about having nutrients there when that, when that seed just starts breaking dormancy and putting that little uh, root out. And my understanding is there is some fertilizer charge in the potting media. Is that correct? Oh, that's absolutely correct. So you know, I, I think about all of the different brands of tobacco greenhouse media that, that our growers use, and every one of them has a very small charge of, of fertilizer added to them. And again, the whole, the whole concept there is you've got just a little bit of starter to try to help feed that little tiny tobacco seedling, but the overwhelming majority of what that seedling will eventually use is going to come from those post-seeding or post-floating fertilizer application. So yes, you're absolutely right. You look at a standard media blend, there's a little bit of lime in there to, to raise the, the pH of that media. You've probably got a little bit of gypsum in there to get some calcium and sulfur in the, in the system. Then you've got some NPK materials and then usually a wetting agent to help, you know, induce that wicking ability uh, for the media to, to draw the solution out of the float bed. So yes, it's not just uh, potting soil in and of itself, there are some other things, one of which would be a little bit of fertilizer. 
One more question. So we talked about disease mitigation through sanitizing trays. And I think the other big disease issue comes later in the season when we start clipping plants. And so can you talk a little bit about the recommendations as far as what to do with those clippings? Absolutely. So, you know, some of our bigger greenhouse diseases are pythium root rot. You know, we've got a little bit of black root rot showing up in places. Target spots one that's kind of flaring up from time to time. And then we've got a uh, collar rot. So, you know, we, we're going to look at, at, at the pythium root rot as being something that's coming out of the water. But to your point about clipping, you know, we're really focused on, on managing collar rot and maybe to a small degree, uh, some target spot. But in specific reference to uh, disposal of clippings, we highly recommend that, one, you not get any clipping debris or, or media debris or anything like that on the plants as those, those mowers move through the house. Uh, if you do see a big clump of media or, or clippings that is left on a tray, please get them off. But when it comes to disposal, we recommend that disposal be at least 100 yards away from any greenhouse uh, or, or greenhouses. And again, that stops the movement of some of these you know, pathogens in, back into a, a tobacco greenhouse. So again, in that reference, I'm specifically focusing on collar rot. Unfortunately, with collar rot, we don't have any you know, fungicide applications that are approved. Uh, we don't have any chemicals that, that growers can spray. So our front line of defense is going to be a cultural practice that would prevent an inoculum source from being in the greenhouse or even getting into the greenhouse. And that's why we say get the clippings off the trays, dispose of them far away, clean your mowers, all those good things that we can do, again, to try to mitigate that disease specifically coming in because we don't really have any kind of curative uh, things that we can do. Right, is there anything else that you think we should talk about that we didn't talk about or anything you wanted to add so jacob i think that as we get into this greenhouse season i just would really encourage growers to you know to pay attention to what's going on you know we're we're looking at record input prices and and yeah you know a greenhouse we're looking at something that may be 300 feet long and 16 feet wide so it doesn't seem that big but there's a lot riding on what's coming out of that greenhouse so just really stay on top and pay attention to things and, you know, we'll be better off at the end of the day. But I think that's just a really big talking point right now is just to focus on the, the practices, the standards that we have. And let's not deviate from what we know uh, we can be successful with. We certainly appreciate your time today, Dr. Van. Thank you, Jacob. As always, it's good talking with you. If you have any questions about tobacco greenhouse production, call your local cooperative extension agent and they will be happy to come out and help you. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. And as always, thanks for listening to Crop Sense, because if it isn't making money, it isn't making sense.